0: We, uh, we asked, we've asked for two things from you over the last two weeks. In the first week, we said, uh, can, you, can you make a commitment to learn, to study with an open Bible and an open mind? Uh, I said, uh, so, so often Christians uh, have an open Bible and a closed mind, and uh, then the cancer side of that is that too many people study with an open mind and a closed Bible, and uh, we want neither of those. We want you to have an open mind and an open Bible. And then last week, I asked us all to make a commitment to go where the text goes and where Jesus goes, not to the, the same place we've always been before, but to follow Jesus, wherever he goes and wherever the text takes us, wherever the Bible takes us, that's where we need to go. I want to keep reminding us that as we go through this series, facing Ancient Beliefs, that the goal of it isn't to, isn't to come out of this series with, with, with a bunch of information, with a head full of knowledge, or a head half full of knowledge for some of us. That's not the goal of this series. The goal of this series is freedom. We want every single person to walk in a greater level of freedom, a greater level of authority, and a greater level of what God has called them to do. That's what we, that's what we want to come out at the end of this series with. And so to, this evening, today, I'm speaking about mercy and justice. And we're not speaking about mercy and justice because it's a nice thing and we're nice people. We're speaking about mercy and justice because it's a biblical thing and we are biblical people. We are Bible people. So here's what I'm going to ask from us today, that we would allow God to search us and to test us. Allow God to search us and test us. David says in Psalm 139, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then he says in 1 Chronicles 28, The Lord searches hearts and minds. And he understands every intent and inclination of our thoughts. Who knows where the thought comes from? <laughs> the Bible says God knows where your thoughts come from. And that thought just pops into your mind. God says, I know the intent of that thought. I know, that, I know the reason that thought entered your mind, and I know the inclination of your heart, what your heart is inclined towards. You're inclined towards not trusting the referee, right? So when he blows his whistle, you don't trust him. That's what your heart is inclined towards. God says, I know that... I know where your thoughts come from, and I know what your heart is inclined towards. And so because we are not very good judges of ourselves, we can't very well test our own motives because we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubts. And so David says to God, God, would you search me? Would you test me? Would you know my thoughts and the inclinations of my heart? And so before you know why I'm asking you to do that, will you make a commitment this evening to allowing God to search you knowing that he and he alone judges you perfectly and rightly. So as we look at mercy and justice today, I want to look at three things. What is justice according to the Bible? Why is it important for us to understand justice correctly? And what should we do about it? What is it how does it apply to us? So firstly, what is justice? I think that so many Christians don't understand what justice is, and so we don't fight for it. And so we get Christians saying, can't we just preach the gospel? Why do we have to teach on justice if we just preach the gospel and get them saved and then the rest will follow? To which I reply, yes, we can and should just preach the gospel. But so often the gospel that we preach is so narrow that it never addresses so much of human life here on earth. We want people's souls to be saved eternally, of course, but I also want their marriages to be saved and I also want their businesses to be saved and I also want their kids to be saved and I also want their neighbors to be saved. It's not just about their souls for eternity. It's about life on earth as well. So this evening we want to camp in the book of Micah. uh, Micah chapter 6 verse 8. And I want to go through two of the Hebrew words that are found there. Micah 6 verse 8 says this. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The first word there that's translated to act justly is the Hebrew word meshpat, and it means to treat people equitably. It, it, it implies rectifying justice, to correct a wrong, to put something right, which is currently wrong, and it puts the emphasis on the action of doing justice. So this word is not merely a concept that we to uh, to speak about. It's something that we practice. So meshpat is not a noun. It's not a concept to think about. It's a verb. It's something to do. Verbs are doing words, right? You guys are writing English next week? Verbs are doing words. This word, meshpat, is a doing word. God says, don't think about justice. Don't speak about justice and have a good idea of what justice is. He says, do justice. Act justly. This word, meshpat, is used more than 200 times in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 24, for example, God warns Israel to have the same rule of law, the same meshpat, for the local as for the foreigner. Everywhere that this word is used, it's used in the context of equitable treatment of people, by people. In the places where Meshpad is used, it's most often used in reference to vulnerable people. The Bible constantly references the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and the poor, because those were the vulnerable people of the day. I think that today we could expand this category of vulnerable people to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless. Many single parents, many elderly people. God says, as you interact with these people, as you interact with vulnerable people, make sure that you do, that, do so with meshpat, Make sure that you treat them equitably. To treat them justly, you have to put right what is wrong currently in their lives. This is a spiritual issue, but it's also far more than a spiritual issue. So if I'm to murder someone, if I was to murder someone, I've, that's a spiritual problem. I've broken God's law, and the punishment for breaking God's law spiritually is death. But the good news is that there's a spiritual remedy available. I can ask God for forgiveness through His Son, Jesus, and where, where I've broken God's law through forgiveness, I'm put right. That wrong is put right spiritually. But I've still, got, I've still left with the practical problem of I've killed somebody. And so I can be put right spiritually, but I've, I, I still might have to go to jail. I can be forgiven, but I still might have to pay a price on earth, and go to jail or pay whatever the, whatever the price is for the life that I took. Yeah. I want to tell you a story about South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was set up after apartheid to bring some sense of justice to people that had been that had suffered and were oppressed through apartheid. <clears throat> One of the commissioners of the TRC was a man by the name of Alex Borain, and he writes a book. And in that book, he tells a story of what happened. It was a frail black woman, about 70 years old, and she stood in front of the room. And across the room from her and facing her were several white men. One of the men standing across and facing her was a man by the name of Mr. Fundenbrook. Mr. Fundenbrook had just been tried and found guilty of murdering this woman's husband and her son. What had happened was that he was a policeman and he'd come to her house in the middle of the night and they'd taken her son and they'd shot him point-blank range and then they'd burn, set his body on fire and, and while he was burning, the rest of the officers partied and drank the night away. A few years later, uh, they came back for her husband and she'd, this woman's husband disappeared without a trace and for months, she knew nothing about his whereabouts. Almost two years after his disappearance, they came back to fetch the woman herself. And he tells the story of how well she'd remembered that night, being taken blindfolded to the place by a river and shown her husband, beaten and bound, and lying on a pile of wood. And the last words out of his lips as the officers poured petrol on his body was, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. This woman now stood in front of the courtroom and she listened to the confessions offered to the commission by Mr. Fundenbrook. You might have heard of the name Desmond Tutu. He was chairing the TRC commission. And after they'd listened, he turned to the woman and he he said to her, What do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? All of the hours in the court were on her, and she started calmly but confidently. She said, I want three things. Firstly, I want to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burnt so that I can gather up some of the dust and give him a proper burial. She said, secondly, my husband and my son were my only family, and so I want Mr. Fundenbrook to become my son and come twice a month into the township and spend a day with me so that I can pour the little love that I have left out on him. And then she paused while everyone else waited for a third thing. This was also the wish of my husband, she said, and so I kindly asked that someone would come to my side and lead me across the courtroom so that I can embrace Mr. Fundenbrook and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As three court assistants came to lead the elderly lady across the courtroom, Mr. Fundenbrook was overwhelmed by what he had just heard, and he fainted. And as he did so, all of those present in the courtroom, friends, neighbors, family, all victims of the same oppression, stood and began singing softly together, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You see, friends, when we understand the grace of God, when we understand the, the, that the how God is forgiven, the unforgivable in us, we will understand the justice of God. When we see the justice of God at work in our own lives, as He has justified us, it's impossible for us not to become those who fight for justice. Because when we understand grace, we understand the justice of God correctly. And then we understand that justice, just like grace, is a spiritual issue, but it's also a physical one. It's a spiritual issue that has to manifest into the physical treating people with equality and justice. Meshpat is equal weighting, it's balance. But how can forgiving someone be just? How can it be just to forgive a man and to adopt a man who has murdered your husband and your son? How can it be just? Surely there's an imbalance. When a crime is committed, there is an imbalance. Meshpat rectifies that. And that's why God can't simply forget about sin. He has to first forgive it, and then he can forget about it. If God were to just forget about our sins, there would be no justice. There would be no balance. There would be no equity. There would be a debt still outstanding, a debt of sin still outstanding and just ignored. God can't forget sin because he's holy, and he can't ignore sin because he's just. And any sin or any wrongdoing is an imbalance. And so what he does is he makes a way through Jesus, who took on himself the penalty of death that was due to us, so that through the sacrifice of Jesus, forgiveness can be made freely available to everyone who will accept it, and there is no imbalance, the sin has been paid for. Grace and forgiveness is not unjust, it's not an imbalance. Rather, God's grace through forgiveness is meshpat, it is justice and equitable treatment in action through Jesus. See, what Jesus did on the cross was to redeem all of creation, not only mankind. The earth itself is under the curse of sin and in need of redemption. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So the problem of injustice is the problem of sin, And the problem of sin is not only spiritual, it's metaphysical. We can see it, we can touch it. The effects of sin can be seen, they can be touched, they can be felt. Therefore, the solution to sin, grace and justice, restoring a balance, must be spiritual, but they must also be able to be seen and touched and felt. What Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden was spiritual in that they suffered spiritual death. But the curse of sin was more than spiritual. It was also physical. So God says to Micah, do justice, do meshpat, and love mercy. The Hebrew word that is translated as mercy here is the word kasad. It is God's great mercy, his loving kindness, and it's the motivation for meshpat. God says, I love justice. I love equitable treatment. I love grace and forgiveness. And the reason I love it is because of kasad. It's because I'm great in mercy that I love justice. And so he says to Micah, do justice and let my loving kindness be your motivation. Those of us who have a fair theology of justice here, what is your motivation? What's your motivation for doing justice? You see, pity is a poor motivator. Anger is a poor motivator because pity and anger both come and go. And so today I'm confronted by an unjust situation and I'm feeling pretty good. And so I have pity and it causes me to act in a certain way. But then tomorrow when I'm confronted with the same unjust situation, uh, I'm not in in such a good place. And so I don't feel pity and that pity doesn't motivate me and the the injustice goes untreated. Pity and anger are poor motivators because they come and they go and they change. But when I'm motivated by God's love and kindness, by the fact that I've been freely forgiven and that it cost Jesus what was owed to me, then I'm able to do justice from that place. And here's what I'm asking of us this evening, that God would test our motives, test the, the hidden thoughts and intents of our hearts when it comes to doing justice. A man called Tim Keller says this, even our repentance needs to be repented of because our heart motivations are never pure. So does the end justify the means? Does doing the right thing for the wrong motives count for anything? I I would argue that does doing justice, does giving people something for the wrong motives count for anything? I would argue that it doesn't, because Jesus' standard is a pure heart, and when we do the right thing with the wrong motive, We only ever end up solving people's temporary problems and not their eternal problems. And that's not justice, that's charity. Justice is a restoration of what was lost, a balance and an equity. And what was lost is not temporary. What was lost is eternal. Do you know what other word means balance? The word righteous. You might have heard the word righteous. It means balance. It means to owe nothing. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become righteousness so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him and through him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus made us righteous. He made it so that we owe nothing. As long as we're not in Christ, as long as we have not taken hold of his forgiveness and been forgiven, there's an imbalance, there's an outstanding debt that is owed on our behalf. But when we confess our sin, He is faithful to forgive and he takes that debt on himself. He pays it on our behalf and restores the balance so that nothing is owed. That's what it means to be righteous. And then he says to us now, go and do the same. For others, as I have restored the imbalance in you that you could not pay, as I have paid the debt for you that you couldn't pay on your own, now go and do the same for others. We can't go and forgive other people's sins; only God can do that. But when we are confronted with an injustice, when we are confronted with an imbalance in their life, when something is wrong, He says, "Go and do the same for them. As As I have put wrong, put right what was wrong in you that you couldn't do on your own. Go and do the same for others." So why is understanding justice important? I honestly don't understand why justice is still such an issue for some people in the church. For me, it's as simple as this. God is just. He is committed to justice, and therefore we should also be. We preach holiness because God is holy. He is committed to holiness, and and therefore we are also. We preach love because God is love. He is committed to love, and therefore we should also be. Why is it somehow different when it comes to justice? God is just. He loves justice, and therefore we should also. How will people know that the God of heaven is just if his representatives on earth, us, his church, are not just, do not act justly? How will people know that the God of heaven is holy if his representatives here on earth, the church, us, do not preach holiness, do not live lives that are holy? You see, ignoring justice isn't a political problem. Ignoring justice is a spiritual problem. When you and I ignore justice, it's a spiritual problem. On the same level as ignoring holiness, God's justice is equal to his holiness. He's not more holy than he is just. He's not more loving than he is holy. God is equally loving. Holy and just. He's not holy one time, just another time, and loving another time. He is always holy, always loving, and always just. We can't, we can't elevate one of God's attributes over the other. We spoke last week about a tapestry, and Jack spoke this evening about a tapestry. And when, when we take the attributes of God, who God is... He's holy, he's loving, he's just. It's not one at the expense of the other or one over the other. They have to be woven together to get, and together they give us a better understanding of God. He's not 50% holy and 50% loving. He's 100% holy, 100% loving, and 100% just all of the time. Why is it important for us to understand justice? Because you can't prescribe a therapy until you have a diagnosis of what is wrong, friends. If we don't understand justice, when we as Christians don't understand God's justice correctly, what happens is we will fall for the illusion of charity. We will buy into the illusion of charity. You might have heard of the Goodwill clothing industry. So, in the sixties and seventies, there was uh, something that rose up in, in America called the Goodwill clothing industry, and people would come. and and give their second-hand clothing to the the Goodwill organization. And then this organization uh, dumped millions of garments uh, into East Africa, millions of garments. And what actually happened was through people trying to be good through a charity, what it did was it destroyed the East African textile industry. People People were getting garments and clothes for free, and so they weren't buying from locals. And so people's giving destroyed the local industry. charity is very often unjust. Those people's problem wasn't that they didn't have a shirt. Those people's problem was that they didn't have dignity. Giving them a shirt, dumping a million shirts on them, actually took away their dignity. It was unjust, not just. Charity is very often unjust. When we don't have a good understanding of what justice is and what it should be, it often leads us to give out of compassion. And giving out of compassion is charity. We can't prescribe a therapy until we have a diagnosis of what is wrong. Not fighting for justice isn't a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. Friends, somehow in the church, we've allowed justice to become a political issue. It's a spiritual issue. And I think it's, we've allowed that because we've made the gospel that we preach too small and we haven't thought about justice correctly. I think because too many people confuse charity with justice, we've been happy to leave that work to the government and to NPOs, to businesses. No, friends, the fight for justice is the fight for the Christian. Effective charities require two arms to work, business and government. Justice work requires three, business government, and the church. But out of those three, who has the ultimate moral responsibility to administer justice? It's the church. This is, justice is a spiritual issue. Justice work has to be led by the church, not politicians, not business people, because justice is first and foremost a gospel issue. You might have heard the word humanitarian, humanitarian aid. Friends, Charity is humanitarian. Justice work is trinitarian. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's trinitarian. Charity is humanitarian. Justice work is trinitarian. So what do we need to do about it? Four quick things and then we're done. Number one, check your motivation. I asked, I asked us this evening, would you be, are you willing to open yourself up to allow God to test your motives to test the hidden thoughts and intents of your, of, of your heart. Where did your thoughts come from? Your compulsion to give, where did that compulsion come from? Our motivation cannot be pity or anger because they don't last. Our motivation has to be the mercy, grace, and kindness that God has shown to us, which causes us to fight for that same restoration in others. Our motivation cannot be compassion, which is often the case with so many Christians. Of course we're compassionate. Of course we're angry at injustice. But if my motivation isn't sustainable, then what happens is my heart goes hard. Justice is never achieved by people with hard hearts. I have to be motivated by God's forgiving the unforgivable in me, and then my heart can remain soft. When I'm motivated constantly by compassion and compassion and compassion and compassion, I get hard-hearted and we end up with so many well-meaning Christians burning out. It's because we spend so much compassion on others that we neglect to take care of ourselves, and that's a shortcut to a breakdown. Number two, what should we do? Recognize all of the effects of sin so that we can address justice holistically. All of the effects of sin. So what took place when sin entered the world? It put us all into poverty. Poverty at its most basic definition is lack. All poverty is, is lack. When sin entered the world, it caused a lack in every single one of us. From the, from the abundance that God has created, sin caused a lack in, all, in every single one of us. But not only in us, in creation and everything that God has created, sin caused a lack. So mankind is created with four primary relationships in order for Him to survive and thrive. A relationship with God, a relationship with Himself, a relationship with others, and a relationship with creation. And what sin did when it enters the world is it it severs those four primary relationships, and it causes a poverty, it causes a lack in all of those issues. And so the work of justice is actually a relational work. We know that through Jesus, we can have a relationship with God restored, but we need to help people to have a true relationship with themselves restored. Because you can't love your neighbor as you love yourself if you don't love yourself. We have to help people restore relationship with others. This is part of the ministry of reconciliation, restoring man to God and man to man. This is fighting for justice. We should care about creation. We should care about issues like global warming and renewable energy, not only because Eskimo is a colossal failure, but because we are to restore stewardship of the earth, caring for the earth is a biblical issue relationship with the creation if we go back to the book of genesis is a biblical issue and it's not the issue for the politicians it's not the issue an issue for the ngos it is an issue for the church how did, G- how, did how did jesus model meshpat equitable treatment when he was on earth he quite simply served and he served everyone equally Serving means that we're sometimes the ones getting up early and, and setting out chairs and staying up late and washing dishes. And it means someone, sometimes we're the one who tidies up the lounge when it's not our job. But Jesus is our greatest example of a servant. And yet he wasn't always the one who cleaned his disciples' tunics before they woke up. And he didn't go early to the well to get water so that everybody had something to drink. I don't see Jesus doing that. I see him washing his disciples' feet. That's the only instance that we have of Jesus serving, and yet he is our greatest example of a servant leader. How did he serve? What he did was to not consider his position, equality with God, something to be grasped. He served people who were, by their very nature, below him. So Jesus' service was to set aside his divinity, his godliness, his godness, to come and serve humanity as a human. And what this looks like for us, I think, is to set aside our ha and very often too high opinion of ourselves, and to become like others, to best serve them. At the heart of service to others, at the heart of understanding and recognizing all of the effects of sins of sin is humility. Paul talks about this concept. In 1 Corinthians chapter nine, he says this, "Even though I am free from the demands and expectations of everyone, I've voluntarily become a servant to any and all, in order to reach a wide range of people religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living, immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world, and I tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempt to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all of this because of the message. I didn't want to only talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. See, friends, God is going to do justice. Justice will be done. Paul says, I didn't want to only talk about it. I wanted to be in on the story. It's This church will do justice. This church will do mercy and justice. But I don't want to be, we don't want to be, I don't want you to be people that talk about it. I want you to be people that are in on it. To serve others means to humble ourselves and become like people in order to win them to Christ. And so often, unfortunately, the church uses an in-your-face approach when Jesus uses an in-your-shoes approach. To be in their shoes is to serve others. Jesus could have come to earth in his divine nature to show us a way to God. But instead, he modeled for us what it is to truly serve people. And you can't do it from afar. You have to do it from up close. Number three, what should we do? Keep fighting for justice and keep resisting charity. Charity simply gives something to a poor person, and then we feel better about ourselves because we've given something to a poor person. Justice looks to restore an imbalance motivated by God's restoring of my imbalance. Many charities leave people stuck in a cycle of lack, dependent on charity to survive. And that's not just. We have to give people who are hungry a fish. And then we have to give them a fishing rod. And then we have to teach them how to fish. And then we have to help them to find bait. And then we have to take them to the best fishing spots. It's no good just giving a, fish a man a fish. Giving a man a fish. Don't give a fish a fish. What's a fish going to do with a fish? It's no good just giving a man a fish. (laughs) That's funny, guys. Come on. (laughs) Charity winds down a window and throws money out the crack. Justice gets up close and personal because it's relational. Charity gives. Justice loves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you've ever been to a wedding, you would have heard 1 Corinthians 13 spoken about on love. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I give all I have to the poor, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Don't don't come here with your cute giving. So I can give all that I have. If I give everything that I have to the poor, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. It's, It's worth nothing. Charity gives. Justice loves. Keep fighting for justice and resisting charity. Charity leaves people happy to live in the shade of a tree. Justice says, Come and climb the tree so that you can see Jesus. Come and eat of its fruit so that you can get seeds to sow for yourself so that more trees can grow, more people can live in their shade and climb them and see Jesus. In this country, we don't speak much about vulnerable people. We speak a lot about poor people. And so we try to solve the issue of poor people with charity. What the gospel does is it calls us, calls us to solve the issue of vulnerable people with meshpat. Poverty alleviation isn't the main aim of justice. What does Jesus say about poor people? He says, you'll always have the poor with you. He does not say, make the poor rich. He says, you're always going to have the poor with you. And in fact, he goes further and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom. Then he says this in Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices; you tithe, Mince, dill, and cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Friends, I think that we can become so preoccupied with trying to solve the issue of poor people that we neglect the more weighty issues of justice, of meshpat. So should we be working to give poor people food, clothing, and shelter? Yes, absolutely. Jesus says you should have done both. You should have given that and then you should not have neglected the more weighty issues. Mercy, justice, faithfulness. See, it's possible for us to solve their immediate circumstances, but to leave their eternity in a far worse place. Number four, what should we do? And I end with this. Ask God to help you to understand and to do justice. 1 Kings chapter 3. You might have heard the story of Solomon and uh, God, asks, God says to Solomon, ask of me anything and I'll give it to you. And you might have heard the story if you ever went to Sunday school as a kid that uh, Solomon asks for wisdom and God is pleased with that. And because he asks for wisdom, God gives it to him. But if you read the scriptures, Solomon asks for a very specific type of wisdom. It says this in 1 Kings chapter 3. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, and nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will give you what you've asked. I will do what you've asked. Solomon asks God not for garden variety wisdom, not for everyday wisdom, but for wisdom in administering meshpat, justice. Wisdom in doing justice. Ask God to help you. You, we are put right with God, and therefore we are committed to putting right every other relationship also. You can ask God to help you and be prepared to face opposition. Friends, justice is offensive to people who don't understand grace properly. If you don't understand grace properly, you will keep falling for the illusion of charity time and time again. Justice is offensive to people that don't understand grace. And unfortunately, you won't only face opposition from outside the church, but sadly from inside the church also. Ask God to help you understand justice and to keep doing justice. Can you stand with me, please?